and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground 44 with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Today, the subject is resistance and in particular, the French resistance. All occupied countries had their resistance or partisan groups often sustained by allied support from the outside. And there's been an excellent recent book on the subject with the same name, Resistance, The Underground War in Europe, 1939 to 1945 by Halik Kachansky, which won last year's Wilson Prize. Now, if you want to learn more about resistance in general, have a look at that. But today, we're going to concentrate on the French resistance, as we say. The importance of resistance to the struggle in the West, at least, it was a different story on the Eastern Front, was limited. But with the clock ticking down to the great invasion of Normandy in 1944, the significance of resistance grew, which begged two main questions. What military role should resistors play in the battle to come? and what might be their political role once the battle was over. The potential role of French resistance was therefore one of keen interest for British and American planners as they fine-tuned their plans for Operation Overlord. And of course, the free French leader, General de Gaulle, had to be consulted. For, as Winston Churchill noted when President Roosevelt, who loathed de Gaulle, suggested ignoring him, the response from Churchill was, you can't really cut the French out of the liberation of their own country. Patrick, your new book, Paris 44, as we've mentioned before, devotes quite a bit of time to the issue. I should just say before we get down to details that the book has already received the endorsement of Julian Jackson, the great British historian of wartime France, who described it as excellent and said it provides a fresh and unexpected take on the liberation of Paris. So congratulations, Patrick. That's one big thumbs up already. We'll come on to the specifics of the Allies' relationship with the resistance and how it played out later. But first, can you tell us a little bit about the nature of the resistance in France? Who was involved at the beginning of 1944? Well, they were a very motley crew, Saul, uh, a rainbow coalition, if you like. So within the ranks, you've got people who before the war had been on the extreme right of the political spectrum. Uh, and at the other end, you've got dyed-in-the-wool communists, but I'm talking here about those who belonged to some underground organization. It's a very interesting question, isn't it, of what actually constitutes resistance. I think it's something we've all asked ourselves at some time or another. What would happen if an enemy invaded our homeland? Would we collaborate? Would we resist? Or would we just keep our heads down and wait for it all to end? It's hard for most people to imagine themselves as combatants, firing a rifle or flying a bomber or fighter, but we all have the imagination to put ourselves in the positions of the French people and wonder how we would have reacted. Well, the motivations that drove people to do something to oppose the invader were very varied, and the form that opposition took was equally diverse. So outside of the organized resistance. There were ordinary people who had no particular political ideology or affiliation who did their bit, you know, sheltering allied escape prisoners or downed airmen, for example, uh, which, you know, carried potentially fatal risks if they were caught or in less obvious ways, like small acts of sabotage or defiance, like chalking up the free French symbol of the cross of Lorraine on a wall, for example, or reading one of the underground newspapers that uh, began appearing after the occupation. But we're talking today about the organized resistance. And at the start of 1944, it was still pretty small, but growing all the time. There are no precise figures for the number actively involved, but uh, the American historian of Vichy 
and the occupation, Robert Paxton, puts the number of active resistors at about 2% of the population. That equates to about 400,000 people. It's actually a surprisingly large number of people, Patrick. I mean, we all know that at the end of the Second World War, a lot of people came out of the woodwork and claimed to be resistors. And there was a lot of criticism that actually the vast majority of them had done nothing of the kind, certainly when it was still dangerous to do so. But 2% actually sounds like quite a large number. So who were they? Can you take us through the various different groupings? Yes, well, the biggest and best organised force was the communists. And then below that, you've got any number of groups coalescing around a political viewpoint, you know, socialist, conservative, or what have you, or indeed no no political uh, viewpoint at all. One of the groups, uh, Sœur de la Résistance, the basic professional people who were, you know, very avowedly apolitical. But um, the apolitical group, I think, could extend to those known as the Maquis. These are the uh, groups operating in the countryside, armed bands who sort of take literally taken to the hills, a lot of them young men who are fleeing uh, following the introduction in 1943 of the uh, Service Obligatoire du Travail, the STO. It's basically the, the scheme brought in in September 1942 to force by the Germans to force young men to go off to work in German war factories and on the land to sustain the Nazi war effort, which inevitably was wildly unpopular. I say brought in by the Germans, but it was, of course, supported by the Vichy collaborationist regime. Okay, so you've got people from a lot of very disparate ideological backgrounds. How on earth were they able to work together? Well, amazingly, by the beginning of 1944, they were all uh, cooperating in a degree of harmony. And this was thanks uh, to an extraordinary feat of organisation and diplomacy carried out by one of the great figures of the resistance, and that was Jean Moulin. If you travel around France today, you'll see his name everywhere, on streets, on schools. He was, from the outset, a a national hero and always will be, I think. Uh, When the war began, he was a rising star in the French civil service. He was the prefect or uh, regional administrator of the department of Eure et Loire, uh, which is just sort of southwest of uh, Paris. When the Germans arrived in Chartres, which is the capital, if you like, of the department, the Germans asked uh, Moulin to back their story that local civilians who had been killed in recent days had been murdered by retreating black Senegalese soldiers. In fact, the civilians had been killed by German bombardment and uh, when Moulin refused to go along with that, he was arrested and then tortured. While in prison, he tried to commit suicide by slashing his throat with broken glass, but he was found and revived. The Germans then sort of left him alone because they were, for the early period, they were kind of on their best behaviour and they thought it was better to cooperate with the local authorities than to be too heavy-handed. But he there was then fired by the new nationalist collaborationist Vichy regime because of his politics. I mean, Moulin was a man of the left. He'd worked energetically to provide support for Spanish Republicans during the Civil War. Anyway, he eventually made his way to England and joined de Gaulle, a man whose politics were not really an easy fit with Moulin's own views. Nonetheless, and this was something that happened a lot, people who uh, before the war would have found de Gaulle rather a a kind of off-putting figure, not someone that they empathised with, 
they recognised in him his incredible leadership qualities. And so this sort of mutual admiration developed between de Gaulle and Moulin. And de Gaulle sent him back to France with a mission to unify all the different resistance networks, which he did by really by just by energy, by sheer force of personality. And in May 1943, this all came together when he forged the National Council for the Resistance, the CNR in French, which brought together all the resistance groups, all the outlawed trade unions and political parties under one umbrella. And so this provided unity and a recognized authority in the shape of Charles de Gaulle. So this was the foundation stone, really, on which proper resistance could be organized. But very sadly, Moulin did not live to see the fruits of his labors because two months later he was dead, having been betrayed to the Gestapo by a comrade. Yeah, it's interesting, this connection between de Gaulle and Moulin, because, of course, their politics would have been very different. But this was, uh, you know, needs must, wasn't it, Patrick? So de Gaulle sent him back. But what other interest does he show in the workings of the resistance? Well, not much, really. Surprisingly little. All de Gaulle's energies, you've got to remember, at this point are going on his relationship with the Allies, with the British and the Americans and the Soviets. So we all have this image of de Gaulle, which I think is a pretty accurate one, this tall, very tall, kind of austere figure, very proud, almost pathologically touchy. Uh, always, always looking out for slights to his dignity and to his honour. Um, but with virtually no resources, he's almost instantly persuaded Winston Churchill that he's a man of destiny uh, like Ch Churchill felt himself to be. And he also got the backing of Stalin uh, quite early on. However, Roosevelt, as I said, just really didn't take to him at all. But in the absence of a, of a plausible alternative French leader, and heaven knows the, the Americans really did try to find someone who could take the place of de Gaulle. Um, they were all pretty hopeless. Uh, Giraud was their first kind of candidate, and he was even touchier, if you like, than, than de Gaulle. Uh, you probably know this story, it's all about when they, he actually, he, he was quite an, an impressive character, somebody escaped from a German prison war camp, he was holed up in the south of France, so the, the Americans got him out to uh, to Gibraltar, actually, to sound him out about whether, what role he would play after the uh, Operation Torch, when the, the Anglo-American invasion of, of French Africa the first thing they had to do was actually a British submarine that um, freed him, that had picked him up. But such was his Anglophobia, they had to pretend it was an American submarine. When he arrived at Gibraltar, he turned around and said, yes, yes, I am prepared to, to play a role in the forthcoming invasion. Uh, but of course, as commander-in-chief, uh, <laughs> to which Eisenhower said, well, that's very kind of, I'm afraid. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that was the kind of person they were dealing with. Anyway, so, but to get back to the question, I mean, de Gaulle is really, you know, just schmoozing these people, often in a very kind of um, competitive way of saying, you know, do you realize I embody France, you have to give me what I ask for, et cetera, et cetera. It sort of worked with the Brits. It didn't work, as we said, so well with the Americans. Uh, so he's not actually concerning himself that much with all the very febrile politics of the various resistance factions. All he's interested in is getting them to accept his leadership and as the head of the French provisional government, which uh, in by February 1944, 80 years ago, uh, they all do, thanks largely to Moulin's efforts. But his indifference was sometimes quite shocking. I mean, men who'd risked everything to carry on the struggle in France were sometimes taken aback when they finally came face to face with the man they looked up to as their leader. There's one story that um, 
Julian Jackson references in this brilliant biography of of de Gaulle uh, about a, a guy called uh, Jacques Le Compoinet, who was founder of the um, of this Sœur uh, de la Résistance group, uh, the apolitical organization I mentioned earlier. Well, he finally gets to meet de Gaulle in, in uh, Algiers in November 1943. He's invited to dinner with the general and Madame de Gaulle. So after Madame de Gaulle has gone to bed, they sort of settle for a good chinwag. Uh, but to um, Le Comte Wenwe's astonishment, the general just lets rip with a long rant about the treachery of the Americans, the British, that went on until well after midnight. And later on, he recalled, while I, he was talking, I thought about how different he was from the idea that my resistance comrades and I had developed about him. He said nothing about us resistors, not a word of thanks. He affects not to have any need of us. So that was de Gaulle in his characteristically arrogant mode. But by early 1944, he actually has to start taking notice of the resistance. It's become a real factor in the upcoming landing and the liberation. And so this offers him both a threat and an opportunity. The opportunity is that he'll be able to say, look, this is what my guys are doing. Uh, and that will sort of, you know, bolster his credentials as the next leader of France. But there's also danger there, of course. And the biggest danger from de Gaulle's point of view is the communists. Now, they've done more and they've suffered more than any other group. So naturally, they're going to be expecting a share of the post-victory spoils. But, you know, even before that happens, there's an even more alarming possibility. Uh, you know, the old saying was, whoever controls Paris controls France. What if the communists rise up in the middle of all the mounting chaos of the impending invasion and subsequent uh, impending liberation, seize the city just as their communard forebears had done in 1871. It's great stuff, Patrick. And we'll come back to the communists in just a second. But a quick aside, as you mentioned, uh, General Giraud, it reminded me of my SBS book. There was, as you say, he was picked up by a British submarine with SBS guys on it, that is with full bots, which were used, these folding boats to pick him up from the coast of France, but also to deposit him on a Catalina flying boat that's going to take him to Gibraltar. Anyway, they're trying to get him from the Folbot to the Catalina, uh, and he's basically standing up. Uh, and this is not what you should be doing <laughs> in a folding boat because they're incredibly unstable. So the lieutenant on board, who assumes Giraud cannot speak English, says to him, sit down, you silly old fool. And there's a fair bit of struggling going on. And, and the lieutenant carries on by saying, watch the old bugger. He doesn't speak a word of English. And he's nearly had me over the side about four times. Well, they finally get to the Catalina and they're about to deposit Giro on the flying boat. And he turns back to foot and says to him, thank you very much, lieutenant. That was very pleasant. I'm sorry I've been such a nuisance to you and all of this in perfect English. So he understood very well what was being said. Okay, back to the story of the communists, Patrick. Um, they'd undergone all sorts of ideological contortions, hadn't they? Given that at the start of the war, the French Communist Party did pretty much what Moscow was telling them to do. And when hostilities began in September 1939, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were effectively allies thanks to the non-aggression pact they'd signed a few weeks before. Isn't that the case? That's right. Yeah, one of the main characters in my book is Henri Tanguy, who was your typical French communist of the period. He was a metal worker in Paris who was converted to communism when he was in his early 20s. When you read the memoirs of these guys, it really strikes you uh, when, when they sort of you know embrace communism. It, it really sort of sounds akin to a religious conversion. 
And he was loyal to the party line uh, coming from Stalin in the same way as a devout Catholic of the period uh, submitted to the dogma handed down by the Pope. Now, Tongi served in the international brigades in Spain. And then, of course, only on his return, he's then very swiftly forced to swallow the new reality dictated from Moscow, whereby the fascists and the Nazis he'd been fighting in Spain were now to be left alone or even treated as brothers, thanks to the pact signed just before the uh, German invasion of Poland. So, you know, this is a pretty breathtaking turnaround. And many French party members tore up their their cards, their party cards in, in disgust. It's pretty nauseating. I'll just give you a taste of it. After the Germans rolled into Paris in June 1940, the Communist Party carries on producing, you know, its, its, its newspaper, L'Humanité, which is really what the kind of, you know, it's like the catechism for the, for the French Communist Party telling them what they, they, the members, what they ought to think. But there's no mention in L'Humanité of opposing these invaders. And far from it, they're saying, um, you know, you shouldn't be shooting Germans. You should actually be fraternizing with them. You should um, be buying them a drink um, for worthy Wehrmacht rank and file, not proletarians too. This is the way it's cast in sort of class struggle terms. In an early editorial enthuse, it's particularly comforting in these unhappy times to see so many Parisian workers engage in friendly relations with German soldiers, whether it be in the street or the neighborhood bar. Good work, comrades. Keep it up, even if it, that upsets certain members of our bourgeoisie who are a stupid as they are spiteful. So Tongi and his ilk had to swallow all this stuff and pretend to themselves that Moscow knew best. Just mentioned here, the old pre-war party leadership, French party leadership, of course, had fled to, to Moscow at the start of the war. So it was a huge relief to, to people like Henri Tongi and his comrades when Barbarossa comes along Hitler attacks Stalin. So the tables are turned and the old allies of convenience are now mortal enemies again, and they can start killing Germans. I, sh I should say here that, you know, basically patriotism trumps ideology on all sides, including the communists. So people like Tongui and Gaullist smoothies like uh, Jacques Delma, who I also showcase in the book, he's a sort of bourgeois tennis playing traditionalist. I mean, they, these Two guys seem to be exact opposites, but uh, it's interesting that they both, the, the nom de guerre that they take, you know, all the resistance guys had fighting names, you know, fighting identities. So Tongi takes us his nom de guerre, Roll, after a comrade called Roll who was killed in Spain uh, when he was serving there. So he's known to us today as Henri Roll Tongi. Now, Delma, who's um, rolled in the underground, is more of a kind of economic spy using his cover as a high-ranking official. He's still serving as an official, pretending to be loyal to Vichy. Uh, he uses his, that role to pass on economic data uh, to London. But he chooses as his nom de guerre, Chabon, after a dilapidated chateau he came across on his travels, which seems to him to embody the glory of old France. Yet despite the fact that you know before the war, they'd have been on opposite sides of the ideological barricades. They're both Frenchmen at, at bottom. They're both Frenchmen. So all the communist international indoctrination can't really drive out the love of country that's drummed into French children at that time from the moment they enter the classroom. So, you know, it's very fortunate that communist and Gaullist can respect each other's patriotism. And that, of course, helps overcome the stark divergence in their ideological 
backgrounds. But to get back to the communists, okay, so a few weeks after Barbarossa, the orders from Moscow change. And they're now told, okay, no more fraternization with your fellow German proletarians. Get out there and kill them. So in August 1942, this starts with a shooting dead of a German, very junior German naval officer at the Barbès Rochechouart metro station in Paris. And then there follows a bloody round of attacks, mostly by very young and green uh, communists, fighters, men and women, many of them Jewish. And that brings down savage reprisals by the Germans, aided, of course, and abetted by the French police. Okay, so moving on to 44, Patrick, um, that's a you know fascinating preamble, but what is the situation when we get to the beginning of 1944? Well, you've you basically got two fronts, really, one in the cities and one in the countryside. In the rural areas, particularly in the southeast, you have these bands of maquis, young men have been driven to take up arms by the prospect of being sent off to forced labour in Germany, but they're supplemented by Jews, communists, uh, Republican refugees from Spain, even Allied airmen who've been shot down and find themselves passed down the line by these sort of escape networks and end up, you know, joining forces with the Maquis. Now, they're not in a very good situation supply-wise. There aren't many arms at their disposal in early 1944. Uh, the British Special Operations Executive, which was set up to kind of foment unrest in Europe, is supposed to supply them with armaments. But until now, the parachute drops have been pretty sparse and mostly restricted to light weapons. There's a few Bren guns and grenades and so forth. But mostly it's this the Sten gun, this ubiquitous, cheap submachine gun, easy to dismantle and put together, pretty robust. But it's actually not much use in any situation, but very close quarters fighting. Um, what the SOE prefer is to supply the resistance with explosives, because the calculation is that they're much more use blowing up things than they are taking on the Wehrmacht, which is probably true. But there is another consideration. The British Foreign Office is reluctant to let large numbers of guns fall into the hands of communists who might then turn them against the liberators in an attempting uprising. That was one reason why uh, the Paris resistance was so starved of weapons when the time came for them to rise up in August 1944. So at the start of the year, the very start of the year, the resistance is more of a nuisance to the Germans than anything else. But as I suggested at the start, Patrick, that's going to change as D-Day draws closer, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the operations against the Germans get more frequent and more effective, which undoubtedly uh, rattles the occupiers. Um, but it also, at the same time, it creates among the population in general a feeling of hope uh, and a greater willingness to take risks. So you see the numbers uh, of people actually joining, uh, growing steadily as the spring progresses. So when D-Day arrives, you've got perhaps 100,000 bona fide fighters, and that number then explodes uh, in the subsequent weeks. But beyond that, you've got a growing acceptance of and willingness uh, to assist the resistance. And also the kind of attitude towards them changes. Before, people were kind of indifferent or regarded them as kind of not very representative of of them and you know their their needs and anxieties they start to see them as heroes rather than people who just bring down punishment on you uh, from the occupiers now a classic example of this is the case of the fighters 
of the Front Tireur Partisan Main d'Oeuvre Immigré, the FTP MOI. Now, the story of the French resistance is awash with acronyms. Uh, the French love committees. They often seem to be, when I was researching this book, that the first course of action when uh, any uh, French person was addressing a problem was uh, to set up a committee and then ideally a load of subcommittees <laughs> below it. So I won't burden the listeners with that particular one, but we'll call them the Manukian group after their leader, Misak Manukian. Now, Manukian wasn't a Frenchman. He was an Armenian. His uh, parents were killed in the Turkish genocide, and then he was brought up in an orphanage in French-controlled Lebanon. And from there, he moved to France. He worked in metal factories. He joined the Communist Party, he was a wonderful man, Manukian. He was a poet, idealist, uh, but also a brilliant organizer and fighter. And many of the men and women in his group were of Eastern European origin, a lot of them Jewish immigrants. And they proved extremely effective at killing Nazis, um, notably the Paris head of, the, of this forced labor scheme, the STO. And that was SS General Julius Ritter, who was uh, gunned down in September 1943. Now, that was a very big scalp indeed. Eventually, Manukian and his band were tracked down and captured and tortured and then put on trial in a very public way. All the kind of media were invited and various you know, intellectuals and uh, movers and shakers and from, from the French kind of cultural scene were, were invited along. Naturally, they were all found guilty and it was almost 80 years ago to the day, 22 of the 23 defenders, including Manukian, were executed at uh, Fort Valerien, uh, just on the edge of Paris. Uh, the sole woman defendant, um, Olga Bencic, who is uh, Romanian, was not among them. Uh, there was some quirk in French law which meant that, that women couldn't be sent to a firing squad, so she was sent off to Germany, where she was subsequently beheaded. Now, Vichy and the Germans tried to use this case to turn the French against the resistance. They produced this very dramatic poster, uh, all in red ink, uh, which became notorious as the Affiche Rouge, the red poster, uh, which pictured, had sort of headshots of the uh, some of the Manukian group highlighting the Jewishness of most of them. And under a big headline, which asked liberators, and then it answered its own question, no, it was liberation by the army of crime, the army of crime. So it's trying to say these people are not your friends and on your side. They're just Jews, they're criminals. So this was plastered up all over Paris, but it had the, exactly the opposite effect, the one that uh, the Germans and Vichy desired, basically backfired. And as I wrote in my book, to many, these long-haired, raggedy young men looked like heroes, unbowed, glowing with conviction and contemptuous of death. Now, only last week, Manukian and his comrades finally got their due recognition in honouring uh, the men and women of the resistance. The French concentrated largely on, on their own citizens. And so this was a, a, an oversight which was corrected by President Macron in a ceremony last week at the Pantheon in Paris, where the great other nation are physically or symbolically entombed. And Macron made a great speech, um, and it, he paid full tribute to the contribution made by foreign members of the resistance to the liberation of France and praised the universal values that, that great people like uh, Manukian embodied. But 
I just want to mention something about the kind of you know the quality of Manukian, his sort of greatness, really. And just before he died, he wrote one of the most profoundly beautiful and touching last letters that I've read to his wife, Melanie. This was written just a few hours before he was shot. It went, At the moment of death, I proclaim that I have no hatred for the German people or for anyone at all. Everyone will receive what he is due as punishment and as reward. The German people and all other people will live in peace and brotherhood after the war, which will not last much longer. Happiness for all. I have one profound regret, and that's of not having made you happy. This is to Melanie, his wife. I would so much have liked to have had a child with you, as you always wished. So I'd absolutely like you to marry after the war, and for my happiness, to have a child, and to fulfil my last wish, marry someone who will make you happy. What a great sort of way to go out. Beautiful words, Patrick. And I think I mentioned before, uh, given my Armenian heritage, that I may have this strange connection with Manukian, in that I'm descended from someone who's also called Manukian uh, on my father's side. I think it's a great, great grandfather. But he was born and brought up in India. And as Manukian was from the original Armenian enclave in Turkey, I suspect. If there is a connection, it's a long way back. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break to hear what the resistance had to offer in the way of support for the invasion when the Allies finally landed in France. Welcome back. We're talking about the resistance. And before we get on to the assets the French resistance were potentially able to offer to the invasion force uh, at D-Day, Patrick, the fact is they weren't just fighting the Germans in the spring of 1944, were they? No, they were were also fighting their own countrymen in many cases. Uh, There was, in effect, a nascent civil war developing in those first months of 1944 uh, between resistors and collaborators. Now, Collaboration took many forms. There were, you know, pretty venal opportunists at the bottom level, but there were also idealists who saw what they were doing as their patriotic duty. So, you know, you get very similar people of very similar background, very similar outlooks, and they split. You know, some go off and join to Gaul in London, but others stay put and they see their relationship with the German, building a relationship with the Germans as a way of protecting what remained of French pride and honour. So there are you know, sincere collaborationists, if you like, but also uh, there's, all, there's all sorts of uh, other murky stuff going on. And so this struggle really is against the sort of worst elements of the collaboration, and it translates into all sorts of appalling French on French violence that uh, really results from the fact that you know a lot of French people were actually doing the Germans' dirty work for them. So on their own, of course, the Germans had nothing like the resources needed to control France. You know, without the French police, uh, without this host of locally hired employees and people just voluntarily informing uh, on the resistance on their neighbours who they suspected of of uh, Gaulist sympathies or, you know, denunciation of Jews, etc. Without that degree of cooperation, the, the, the Germans couldn't really have hoped to keep a rebellious population down. Now, chief among these collaborationist auxiliaries was the Milice. This was the militia founded by the fanatical collaborator Joseph Darnon in uh, January 1943. 
by the spring of 44, their, most of their efforts are going into trying to hunt down the resistance, and particularly the Maquis bands in the countryside. And it's not just the resistance themselves, they're going after their families. It's a very, very nasty, vicious business, uh, triggering this sort of never-ending round of attack and reprisal. Now, if you just think about France's history since 1789, it's been a succession of revolutions and internal conflicts. Uh, as, uh, as recently as 1871, as I mentioned earlier, French troops have put down their own countrymen, the left-wingers of the uh, Paris Commune, with appalling savagery. And despite all these upheavals, they never actually arrive at a form of government that everyone could agree on. So even the Third Republic, which comes to an end with the with the German invasion of France, even that was a very sort of unhappy arrangement uh, with lots of people inside France you know, regarding it as a sort of corrupt entity that had to be removed. So when people are looking to the future, the spectre of a post-liberation civil war is a very real prospect at this point, which is something we'll discuss later on in the series. Okay, but what actually does the resistance do to help the Allies when the great invasion is finally launched, Patrick? Well, this was a matter of some debate among the planners. You know, so there's a high measure of agreement between the Allied command and the free French uh, you know, outside of France, i.e. The, the Gaullists, about what the resistance should and could be doing. And by the spring, uh, all the resistance elements have been organised inside France, into the uh, Force Française de l'Intérieur, the FFI, or the FIFIs as they were known, and then under Gaullist direction. So there's a, there's a degree of cohesion uh, and, in theory, a proper command and control structure. Well, the basic idea is they don't seek engagement with German forces because they're bound to come off worse, and uh, inevitably that will also bring down reprisals and atrocities on the local population. But nonetheless, they do step up arms drops. So the SOE organises 331 drops uh, to the Mackey in April. That rises to 531 in May. And by June, it's up to 866. So you do see a big spike in clashes with the Germans, which, again, we'll talk about in a future episode. But the essential task remains really to supply intelligence, to carry out sabotage operations against railways, ammunition dumps, power lines, telephone networks and all that. And they do this. They do this pretty effectively. So by the first half of 1944, the, these attacks on the rail system are so widespread that the Germans had to import workers from the German state railroad in order to kind of keep the trains running because they completely distrusted now the French cheminots, the railway workers, who were, from the beginning, they were always doing their best to try and mess up the Germans, if you like. So they that's one of the reasons, actually, why just as a bit of a, uh, a diversion here. But the, the French railway workers are fantastically well-treated. And uh, even though they have the probably the best working conditions of any workers possibly in the world, they frequently go on strike to either maintain their position or improve it. And one of the reasons that they get away with it is because they still have this lingering memory of their fantastically patriotic service in the war. So uh, next time that you're stuck at the Gare du Nord <laughs> waiting to get the Eurostar uh, because there's a strike, you should you should remember that. I'll try to. Okay, so the scene is now set for a general revolt, which will in turn set the tone for how the world and the French see themselves once liberation finally comes. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, France has hardly covered itself with glory in this war, has it? I mean, there's the woeful performance of the military in 1940, that sort of pervasive mood of defeatism that was around even before that. Uh, then the surrender, the acceptance of terms that basically made France a vassal state of Hitler. And then the shameful way the authorities cooperated with the Germans to hunt down, torture, kill resistance members to round up and deport both foreign and French Jews to a fate in the East that could, even though they might not know the specifics of the Holocaust, they could very easily guess what was going to happen to the Jews when they arrived there. So this left many people with a rather queasy feeling of guilt and shame. And so the resistance and uh, their activities were a point of light in this dark picture. And the liberation offered a grand opportunity for redemption and to shape the narrative for future generations. Well, these are all themes, Patrick, that we'll be exploring further down the line when we come to the liberation of Paris, one of the most fascinating events in the year of 1944, and one we'll try to do justice to nearer the anniversary in August. Okay, we still have time for some listeners' questions. And the first one is from Angus Grant, and he writes... I've been listening to your podcast now since after the war in Ukraine started. It's always fascinating and informative. But once and again, there can be something that you miss. I listened to you talking about the USMC pilot with drone kill patches, and you rather sniffily replied that it would never have happened in World War II. So Angus had looked into this, and he's found, uh, really interesting actually, he's found a an image of a pilot, a Polish pilot, with not only kills from German planes, but also four V1 drones that he shot down. And in the caption, it says that he, he's called an ace. So Angus thinks that um, this is an example of actually someone using drones to tot up his numbers and call himself an ace. And therefore, it did happen anachronistically. But Patrick, if you had a chance to have a look at that, because I'm not entirely convinced that that's actually what the picture says. Yeah, well, it's a bit, it's a, thanks for that, Angus, because it clearly is the case that this counted as a kill. So what you see in the picture is it's not the actual pilot himself. I think it's a a ground crew member uh, painting on the side of the pilot's aircraft. I think it's a Mustang. And the pilot's called uh, squadron leader Eugeniusz Horbachevsky, who I think served with 315 Squadron, and was indeed a a genuine ace, uh, having shot down, I think, 13 at least German aircraft, proper conventional aircraft. But nonetheless... Uh, the ground crew guy is painting on four V1s as well. Uh, so clearly that did count towards your score. So we stand corrected there. I, I yeah, thought well, not, we... not that, hold on a second, Patrick, not entirely. Um, Angus would be right if there were just five uh, markings for V1s and <laughs> as a result, the Polish pilot would call himself an ace, which is all we were saying for a USMC pilot today to call himself an ace because he's just shot down, you know, Houthi drones. Um, no, we're not convinced that they would have done that in the yeah, Second World yeah. War. But he's half right. Angus to say that they were actually counting the V1 uh, kills on their planes. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for that. That's very interesting. We've got one here from Chris Schofield, who says, first up, I want to acknowledge your podcast and keeping the Ukraine war at the forefront, particularly with the media's attention now diverted. However, he has, uh, Chris has some criticism of a our episode on the Pacific War. He says the vast majority of fighting on the land in Papua New Guinea was done by the Australian Army, not the Americans, as you alluded. 
In fact, Japan's army suffered their first defeat by Australian territorial troops on the Kokoda Trail. This, in fact, was the primary reason that the Japanese did not make it to Port Moresby, which is, of course, where they were hoping to arrive and then from there to menace Australia. The Battle of the Coral Sea was crucial, but that was due to the Japanese trying a different tact after being halted by Anzac troops just a short distance from Port Moresby. Um, from then on, the fabled Australian desert rats arrived back from the North African campaign, and the Japanese were then steadily pushed out of uh, Papua New Guinea and the Dutch East Indies. I acknowledge that the American Marine Corps fought a crucial campaign, but their campaign involved the island hopping through the Pacific. Anyway, other than that, keep up the great work. So basically, Chris is saying not enough credit being given to the Aussies here. Is that fair? Is that fair comment? It, it is fair, Chris. And uh, I have to acknowledge a mayor culpa on this one, Patrick, because he's absolutely right. The Australians played an absolutely crucial role in the fighting in Papua New Guinea under the command of MacArthur for most of this period, it should be said. Uh, and I should also mention the fact that there were US Army troops fighting on Papua New Guinea as well. But the Australians did shoulder the the bulk of the work. Uh, and there is quite a funny story when the 9th Division, which comes back from fighting the desert, desert veterans, as Chris points out, get down to uh, Melbourne, where the US Marine Divi- First Marine Division has been training, uh, having come back from Guadalcanal. And there's a lot of trouble between the two formations because, of course, the Americans have been there and they've been chatting up all the young Australian ladies and girlfriends, presumably of these ninth division men. And there's a lot of trouble until they finally get them all together in a stadium, give them unlimited amount of beer. And amazingly, they all get on incredibly well. And all the all the uh, anger and frustration and bad feeling dissipates at that point onwards. And they both go on to do impressive feats in the Pacific, the 9th Australian Division uh, in Papua New Guinea, as Chris points out, and the 1st Marine Division in those various campaigns we discussed last week. I suppose one thing they would both have had in common is a sort of mutual antipathy and hostility to the Brits, I suppose. That would be something they could have bonded over. <laughs> there was that. There was also antipathy towards the guys who weren't frontline troops. And you, you, you'll have seen this many times, Patrick, the Combat soldiers, even when even their enemy, they feel often more affinity for than they do to the so-called service troops or the tail of the army that aren't actually doing much of the fighting. And we mentioned this, uh, didn't we, on the uh, Ukraine bit of our podcast when we were talking about people at the front really only being a small percentage of any army fighting. And you, you never really consider people who are supplying an army to be quite doing their bit when you're actually up at the front where all the danger is. Yeah, and those the, the American troops uh, in just for example the Fourth Infantry Division, who landed uh, on D-Day at Utah Beach. I was reading something about how they categorised uh, the difference. So basically, uh, people who actually had a gun in their hands and fired that gun were soldiers, and everyone else was just in the army. <laughs> That's a rather good way of putting it. Um, now, I've got an amusing contribution here from Gareth McKinty in. Uh, Carrick Fergus, Northern Ireland, who says, many thanks for your very interesting podcast on the arrival of the Americans. Northern Ireland saw the arrival of a lot of Americans during the war, and they most certainly left their mark. Gareth says, after the Good Friday Agreement in the late 1990s, I decided to take a drive around some areas of the province that I would never have dared going anywhere near, this presumably because it was bandit country infested with provos. Driving around the hills of South Armagh, I came across an ancient Neolithic burial chamber 
I got out to have a look at the inscription, which read something like, this Neolithic burial chamber is around 6,500 years old and stood here intact until 1942 when an American Sherman tank crashed into it, collapsing the rear of the chamber. <laughs> he says, "He says it's since been rebuilt. We forgive, but we don't forget. Nice one. Great stuff. And we've got a related uh, message from Norma Graham, who I know very well, uh, met at the We Have Ways Festival last year. And Norma writes, I listen with great interest to your recent podcast on the impact of American servicemen in England. But although I had mention of the gallant Poles and the graceful Spaniards, I was sad that the presence of Canadians was ignored. Canadian servicemen began arriving in number by the beginning of 1940 and spent much of their time training, as well as an important part of the plan for Britain's defence in case of invasion. Patrick, of course, has written about the Canadians at Dieppe, and Norma goes on to write, some 250,000 Canadians spent time in the UK before seeing action at Dieppe, as I say, Sicily, Italy, Northwest Europe, and even Southeast Asia. There was certainly a great deal of social interaction with British people, including some, as she puts it, romantic attachments, 22,000 babies born to British mothers and Canadian fathers, and almost 48,000 British war brides emigrated to Canada after the war ended. I'll I'd call that a pretty significant impact. Thanks for your podcast. It's one I look forward to every week. But please, 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 I added those other two pleases. Don't forget the Canadians. <laughs> Another interesting uh, contribution from Joe Chiunchi, I think it's pronounced, or Chiunchi, an American university professor in, in Japan, Joe is. Now, he, Joe, he says, I'm the grandson of Henry Bryder, a U.S. Army engineer, veteran of World War II. He was always fond of telling incredibly detailed and dramatic stories of his experiences in Europe and Africa from Operation Torch to the end of the war in Marseille, preparing for a land invasion of Japan, which of course mercifully never came. He once told me an interesting story about what I guess could be military surplus or actual theft, I suppose. The story is that there was one soldier in his unit that managed to take apart a US jeep while in France and mail back individual pieces to the States <laughs> under the radar of superiors. Back in the States, he was able to reconfigure the Jeep and use it as his main mode of transportation. I guess this is one way of dealing with surplus. And I suppose this is a reference to that, that fascinating question we had from someone sort about uh, where does all the war kit go uh, when, when the conflict is over? And he goes on, incidentally, my grandfather believes he was the one who inadvertently caused American soldiers to be called Joe, as in G.I. Joe. While in North Africa during Torch, he asked a local boy for some wine or such and offered to trade him chocolate for it. He didn't know how to address the boy, so chose the name Joe as a common moniker instead of Hey You. So the next day, the boy approached the camp with the wine and started calling out Joe while looking for my grandfather, most likely believing it is a second person singular pronoun. <laughs> my grandfather swore that from that time on, locals began referring to the US soldiers as Joes. Well, I suppose there's a, that's one uh, explanation for it. Anyway, he says he's obviously, his grandfather was a fount of good stories. So uh, even though he's called Joe, he says, no, my name has nothing to do with a little anecdote above. And the final one from Paul uh, in New Zealand. I'm loving the Battleground 44 podcast. He writes, it sends me down so many rabbit holes and keep the Ukraine updates coming. In last week's episode, Saul said that if Japan had attacked Russia six months after the German invasion and instead, instead of attacking South 
through the Pacific that Russia would almost certainly have been defeated. I'm no historian, but I do a bit of reading. Long story short, I don't think that whatever actions Japan took in the Far East would have had any bearing on the war in Europe. Here's my reading of the situation. And he gives a number of points. I won't read them all out, but I'll read out a couple. The Soviets maintained considerable forces in the East for this reason. They were prepared. The Kwantung Army, that's the army in uh, Manchuria, which was the closest to Russia, of course, the Japanese army, could not be, could not, given its commitments in China, muster the overwhelming force numbers to be confident of defeating the Soviets. Uh, and he goes on to say it lacked uh, sufficient supplies. If the Kwantung army had somehow managed to take territory like they envisaged, this would not have made a material difference to the Soviet war effort. Interesting points, Paul, but I'm afraid I beg to differ. What you've got to remember with the Kwantung army is that, yes, it was in place and, yes, it was concentrating on what was going on in China. But if Japan really had made the, the strategic decision to go north rather than south, there would have been a whole lot more material weapons and soldiers to devote to the war against uh, the Soviet Union. And the other thing you've got to bear in mind is that it's not a question of defeating the Soviet Union on, the, on their own. It's distracting the Soviets so that they couldn't send all those reinforcements. If you remember, as uh, Moscow is about to be taken in the winter of 1941, what makes the big difference are the troops sent from Siberia. And they would not have been able to move them at that sort of crucial juncture if Japan had attacked North instead of South. So no, I don't agree. I think they would have been defeated. Uh, and it's very fortunate, frankly, for the Allies that uh, Japan decided not to go in that direction. Yep, I'm with you on that one, Saul. That's certainly how the way the Germans saw it uh, in their sort of post-war analysis. Their generals who wrote memoirs and so forth did highlight uh, this as being for them a sort of uh, crucial error in terms of Axis strategy. Okay. That's another fascinating episode. Patrick, thanks so much for all of that on The Resistance. Uh, do join us on Friday when we'll be hearing more of the latest from Ukraine and answering listeners' questions. And also next week on Battleground 44, when we'll be coming back to the year 1944 and the big anniversaries. Goodbye. Goodbye.